Well, here we are in the final week of our series, Life is a Battlefield, and you know, maybe this is your first Sunday in it. You're like, wait, last week in the series, this is my first time checking this out. That's fine. Uh, if this is your first time, or if you missed any of the weeks of this series, there's only three, I would really encourage you to go back and watch this, because what we've done in this series is look at the idea of spiritual warfare, which can be kind of off-putting and crazy-sounding for some, uh, but it's an idea that Paul brings up in Ephesians chapter 6, and we kind of spent these last three weeks walking through that specific passage of Scripture because in it, Paul helps us understand what spiritual warfare is and how it is a practical outworking of what we know as Christians, what we believe in the gospel, and what that looks like fleshed out in our lives. Paul says that spiritual warfare is a real thing. It is a battle against a real enemy, but ultimately we have hope in a real victory that comes from Jesus Christ. So go back, Watch those two messages because today is going to kind of bring a culmination to all of that. Today, what we're going to look at is the offensive tools that Jesus has secured for us to fight these battles in spiritual warfare and ultimately what's going to enable us to stand in the victory that he's already won. So where we're going to be in finishing up this section of scripture is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 through 20. So if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. These are the last few verses in the section where Paul has been describing to us the armor of God and commanding us, calling us to put it on so that we can withstand the attacks of the enemy. He starts to wind down. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. Let's read it together. He says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. So, again, if you have been here the last couple weeks, you know that this is Paul describing for us what is called the armor of God. That's what he calls it. That's what every Sunday school teacher and Awana teacher has called it. And that's what the posters say when you see them in the classroom with a knight donned in all this armor. But it wasn't the armor of a medieval knight. It was the armor of a Roman soldier. It was a belt. It was a chest plate. Uh, it, it was a shield. It was a helmet. Now it's a sword. And he talks talks about all of these things in light of their historical comparison to a Roman soldier. And he tells us that this same armor is armor that we must put on to withstand the attacks of the enemy. So last week, again, we looked at the defensive pieces of this armor when we looked at, uh, at our belt, at the chest plate, at the shoes, and at the shield. This week, as I said, we're going to shift to that more offensive equipment that he gives us. So not what we really use primarily on defense, but those pieces of the armor that we use when we go on offense. And the first piece of offensive equipment that Paul gives us here is the helmet of salvation. Now, I get it. It sounds weird to think of the helmet as an offensive piece of armor, and, and maybe it is, right? Because traditionally helmets were defensive in nature. But I want to show you why I think this idea of the helmet being more of an offensive piece of our armor really does fit with what Paul's getting at here. Um, I think the first thing in understanding this is to understand the circumstances under which the Roman soldier would have donned his helmet. 
right? So, so all of this other equipment that we have talked about, you know, the, the belt that went under the armor, that's the first thing they put on every morning to gird up their robes. Uh, he talks about the chest plate. That was the main piece of the armor that they put on to protect them at all times. He says that they put on their shoes that they would wear. Uh, they put those on every morning, and then they would take the shield as they left every day. But the helmet is a piece of the armor that was reserved to put on until right before the soldier was going to go into battle. If you've seen the Roman soldier helmets, it wasn't a small helmet. It was a big helmet. It was, it was heavy. It covered most of the face, the sides, the back. It was a helmet that they wouldn't put on because of how uncomfortable it was until right before they knew it's time to attack. It's time to engage. And so I think when we get that this is a piece that they put on right before battle, it kind of helps set the stage that the helmet really is more of an offensive piece because for us as believers, it is the final piece of this armor that we put on knowing we are heading into battle to face the enemy. Maybe uh, as simply put as we can say it, the helmet of our salvation prepares our minds for the battle. I think that's what Paul has in mind when he calls it our helmet, that this helmet of salvation is the piece of the armor that prepares our minds for the battle ahead. Well, how exactly does it do that? So as we answer that question, how does the helmet prepare our mind? Um, I think as we answer that, we begin to see more specifically how the helmet it really is offensive in its nature. Uh, but as we answer that question, we need to understand that there are really three ways that we can properly understand salvation. Now, I don't mean that there are three different salvations. I mean, there are three different aspects to our salvation, and uh, we can properly understand more of what salvation is as we understand those three aspects. Let me kind of walk through them really quickly with you. Um, The first aspect is this. There is a past reality of our salvation, What that means is, is that every man, woman, and child who's ever been born on this earth, born of a man, born of a woman, they were born in sin, separated from God. Okay? The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are captives of the enemy. We are born bound for an eternity separated from God in hell. But there is a moment when we hear the good news of the gospel that we respond in repentance and faith, and in that moment, salvation happens. The past reality of our salvation is that there is a moment when we pass from spiritual death to eternal life. There is a moment where we have our sins once and for all forgiven. There is a moment where we are saved forever from that point So our salvation is a past reality. It is settled. Once we respond to the gospel in repentance and faith, we are saved. Past tense, done deal. But there is also a present reality of our salvation. And we talked about that a little bit in last week's message. See, right now, at this very moment, for those who have repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus, we stand before God the Father in the gifted righteousness of Jesus. So we talked about that again a little bit last week, where Jesus took the filthiness of our sin, put it on himself, carried it to the cross, and killed it. 
But then not only that, he gives us his perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience of a sinless life before the Father. And so now when God looks at those of us who have trusted Jesus, he sees that gifted righteousness of Jesus covering us so that when we stand before him now, we are covered by the righteousness of Jesus. That's what God sees now in this moment when he looks at us. And here's what's cool. That is true in your best moments, and that is true in your worst moments. That's true when you're on the mountain. That's true when you're in the valley. No matter where you are or what you're going through, if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, when God sees you, he sees the perfect righteousness of his Son. And then we go on from there, daily growing and maturing into our practical righteousness that gives evidence of that present standing. Okay, So both of these aspects of salvation, they are true, they are important. You need to understand them as you ground yourself in your faith. But I'm not sure that it's either one of those aspects of salvation that Paul has in mind when he begins to talk about the helmet of salvation. Yes, there is that past reality. Yes, there is that present standing. But we also have a third aspect of our salvation. That is a future hope. Okay, And what that future hope is, is the confident assurance that we will be with Jesus forever in eternal life. But more than that, it is the assurance that Jesus is also going to redeem and reconcile our sin-broken world to himself. He is going to undo the full curse and effects of sin. And he is ultimately going to judge, punish, and eradicate the enemy and darkness forever. That is the hope of our salvation. And it is a future hope because we don't experience that reality right now. Right now, our world is still broken by sin. Right now, we are still burdened by our flesh. Right now, the enemy is still active and is still uh, attacking. But one day, none of that will be true anymore. One day, Jesus will return, not as a sacrificial lamb, but as a conquering lion. He will come and establish his kingdom on earth, and everything that sin broke, he will fix. That is the future hope of our salvation. And I'm convinced that that is what Paul had in mind here. When he talks about the helmet of our salvation, he's talking about the future hope of our salvation. And really what has convinced me of that is two other scriptures that reinforce this same idea and language. I'm going to share them with you really quick. The first one is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. This, again, is another letter written by Paul to a local church, and he uses some of the same language of the armor of God here in this Thessalonian letter. This is what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. Uh, Paul literally tells them, let me turn there, sorry. He, he literally tells them this idea of, uh, of putting on the armor of God, except he says it a little bit differently. He doesn't go into as much detail. And he says, but since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled. And here's what he says, put on the armor of faith and love. So that's a little bit different, right? Not just the armor of God, the armor of faith and love. We haven't talked about love in Ephesians. But then he says this, he says, put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. 
a helmet of the hope of salvation. So it's that idea here, I think, where Paul is reinforcing that the helmet of salvation is about that future hope. Again, not a wishful thinking kind of hope, but a firm assurance in what the Lord has promised and what he's going to do. The second verse we're going to look at is Isaiah chapter 59. So if you go to Isaiah chapter 59, uh, you may begin thinking automatically, wait a minute, why are we going to the Old Testament if we're talking about the armor of God? Well, that's because, and we've mentioned this, you see the armor of God in the Old Testament, specifically here in Isaiah chapter 59. But you need to understand the context. And for sake of time, we won't read the whole chapter. But in Isaiah 59, what you have is you have God looking out over the world, including his people and those who are not his people, and he sees the wickedness that is taking root in the world. And so he says, I'm going to do something about it. Now, I would encourage you, if you have time, read Isaiah 59, because the context here is incredible. But look at what he says specifically in verse 11. Or I'm sorry, verse 17. In Isaiah 59, verse 17, he says, He, now that he is God, it is the Lord. It is the one who starts this back in 59.1. 59.17 says, He, the Lord, Put on righteousness as body armor, we've seen that, and a helmet of salvation on his head. That's what we're talking about. But look at this. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So what we see here in Isaiah 59 verse 17 is that the helmet of salvation is worn by the Lord himself as he comes to judge the wicked and establish his kingdom of righteousness here on earth. And so the helmet of salvation that the Lord is wearing is a global event. It speaks of the salvation of the world. It speaks of the restoration of all that sin broke, not just our personal relationship with him. And I think that sometimes we miss that, that when we talk about salvation, that we very much narrow it down to just our relationship personally with Jesus. And listen, your relationship with Jesus is personal. It is only that relationship by which you are saved. But your salvation is a part of a bigger global salvation where God is going to bring about the redemption of the world. And so I think it's when we understand this that we really do see the helmet of salvation is just as much offensive as it is defensive. It prepares our minds for battle with the confidence that Jesus has already won the victory, will, already, will ultimately bring about the culmination of that victory here on earth, and none of that is dependent on us for its success or failure, Right? It's not about you. It's not about if you win this battle. It's not about if you stand. It's not about if you fall. It is about this is the helmet of salvation that belongs to the Lord, and he is going to do it. He will not fail. See, it's not about us, but the good news of the gospel is that it is for us. This helmet of salvation, understanding who the Lord is and what he will do, gives us confidence to go and engage in the battle, which is why the helmet of salvation really does go hand in hand with the next piece of armor that Paul lists here. Same verse, uh, all the way back in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, is the sword of the Spirit, right? He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, 
which is the word of God. So when Paul tells us to take up the sword of the spirit, the only weapon that we are given, he says very plainly that this sword is the word of God, the scriptures, the Bible, that is our weapon for battle. Now, Jesus himself shows us how the scriptures uh, can be a weapon for battle against the enemy. If you go back and look in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is in the wilderness after his baptism, and Satan himself comes to tempt Jesus. And every time he does, three times, Jesus parries every attack of the enemy through the quotation of scripture, through the words of scripture. So Jesus himself gives us the example of how we are to wield this sword, which is the word of God. But again, I think there's something else going on here that we can't miss. And that is that the word for word is not the normal word. (laughs) I don't know if that made any sense to you or not. The word for word isn't the normal word. Here's what I mean. The Bible wasn't written in English. It's primarily written in Hebrew and Greek, the New Testament specifically in Greek. And there were multiple words for the English word, word. And In the New Testament, primarily the word for word that is used is the word logos. But here in Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul says the word of God, he does not use the word logos. He uses the word rhema. Why is that important? Why does that matter? Because rhema is not the written word. Rhema is the spoken word. Rhema is when we speak out. And so the importance here is that it is specifically the speaking, the sharing, the preaching of the word that is our weapon for battle, right? Yes, we we already talked about the importance of the word of God. Go back to last week. The word of God is the truth that is the foundation for our faith, but it is the active proclamation of the word, the preaching of the word, that is the offensive weapon we take into battle. And I think that's twofold. Number one, it's the preaching of the word to ourselves. Look, we are prone to wonder. We are prone to temptation. We are prone to misplaced feelings and ideas. And so we have got to learn to preach the message of the truth of God's word to ourselves every day. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel. It matters what God says. But I think here, primarily, Paul has in mind the second part of that, which is specifically preaching to others. The way that we take the fight to the enemy is through the public proclamation of the gospel. Paul, again, tells us very plainly in Romans chapter 10 that there is no believing the gospel without hearing the gospel and that hearing the gospel is impossible unless someone speaks out to preach it, proclaim it, and share it. And so don't miss what Paul's saying here. The primary way that we engage in offensive spiritual warfare is by proclaiming the gospel. Don't don't miss that. When we talk about spiritual warfare, maybe the biggest misconception is this, is that you're going to go out with a super soaker full of holy water. You're going to go out with the names of all the demons. You're going to go out with all of these uh, bindings and all of these authoritative statements, and you're going to cast out the enemy. Whatever. That's not it. What's it is that we push back the enemy as we share the gospel and see lost people come to faith in Christ. The enemy 
cannot stop the power of the gospel proclaimed. There's a passage in Acts where there were some guys who thought they were going to get into spiritual warfare by going and casting out demons. And so they go to this demon and go to cast him out and they say, come out in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. And the demon looks at those guys and says, we know Jesus, we know Paul, who the heck are you? And it says that the encounter ended with those seven men leaving the house beaten and naked. And you might have gotten in a fight before, you might have got your tail whipped before, but you got to get your tail whipped real bad to leave naked, (laughs) right? So it's not the idea of going and proclaiming your authority against demons in Jesus's name. I don't know how that's going to work out for you, but what I do know is that we have a clear promise in scripture over and over again that the enemy is powerless against the power of the gospel. When the gospel goes out, it does not come back empty. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the hope of the world. And the kingdom of darkness is pushed back. The kingdom of heaven gains ground every time the gospel is proclaimed and a person lost in their sin believes and finds new life in Jesus. That is spiritual warfare. That is taking it to the enemy, proclaiming the gospel. But we're running out of time, but there's one final aspect that we can't miss in this passage on spiritual warfare. And that is, and we've already read it in verses 18, 19, and 20, Paul's closing emphasis on prayer, right? So, so he says it like this in verse 18, pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. So look, It is not by accident that Paul follows up his call for the church to stand by passionately requesting prayer, as he himself, in prison no less, fought to stand and proclaim the gospel. See, here's what we have to get, guys. A theological grasp of the gospel that doesn't result in prayer is a useless and a lifeless carcass. Likewise, prayer warriors with no real grasp of what the gospel is all about, may be passionate, but they're no more useful in the battle than a soldier without weapons. True spiritual understanding of the gospel combined with a passionate prayerfulness is the combination that Paul seeks after that is effective in the fight. The one who prays like that doesn't just pray for himself or herself, God, help me with this problem but they pray for the saints and for the bold progress of the gospel to push back the enemy. It's all about putting on the armor, taking up the sword, engaging in prayer. That's what it looks like to stand. That's what it looks like to fight. So as we bring the series to a close, I want to issue one final warning, so to speak. Um, because I think when we talk about spiritual warfare, there's a lot of things I want to warn you away from that, that are just really extra out there, not what Paul's talking about. But there is one final warning that I do want to leave with you, and that is this. Don't, don't fall into the false idea 
that spiritual warfare is primarily about you and what you do for Jesus. You know, well, we talked about that a little bit last week, that this is a call, this is an armor given to the church as a whole. So it's not just your fight, it's our fight. But also don't, don't fall into the lie that spiritual warfare is about you and your superpowers going and doing stuff in Jesus' name. That's not what spiritual warfare is about. Again, said it already, this isn't about you. It, it's for you. Don't mishear me. It's for you. It's for you so that you can stand. It's for you so that you can join God and his redemptive work in the world. But it's not about you ultimately. It's about Jesus. I mean, in one sense, this whole armor of God we've been talking about is a picture of Jesus himself. Jesus is the truth. He is our righteousness and our peace. His faithfulness makes possible our faith. He is our salvation. And John says he himself is the word of God. So Jesus is the armor. The armor is a picture of Jesus. That means when we trusted Jesus, we received the armor. The victory is his. The armor is his. But because of his goodness and his graciousness, he has given them both freely over to us to be received and equipped by faith. So why, why do I take time to warn you of that and to say that? I do that so that when the enemy comes, and don't make, don't, don't make any mistakes, the enemy's coming. When the enemy comes and when you take your stand and your legs get weak and you grow tired and it's hard to stand when the enemy comes, Realize that your hope for the battle is not in your strength, but it's in the strength of Jesus given to you. That is how we stand. Spiritual warfare, look at me, is not about what you do for Jesus. We don't defend Jesus. He defends us. He is our defense. My favorite pastor, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, this is how he put it. I can't say it any better. He says, suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, full-grown king of the beast. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel it was not humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. The best defense for the gospel is to let the gospel out. When you think about spiritual warfare, it is not about you, it is for you. It's not about what you do for Jesus, it's about what Jesus has done for you. It's not about you defending him, it is all about him defending you. So the call that we have is to stand, to fight, and to let the lion loose. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for the time to go through this very important series. God, I pray that for those who are in the battle now, that they would find it so practically helpful that it would begin to turn the tide in their heart. It would strengthen their legs as they seek to stand. For those who this doesn't seem practical because they just don't see any kind of battle around them. God, I pray that you would hide the truth of their word, your word deep in their hearts so when the battle comes, they will be able to stand. But God, above all else, I thank you for Jesus. That we stand in the ground he's already taken. And I pray 
that as we stand and as we fight, that we will be reminded that the lion is already on the loose and he is fighting on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.